this morning. I'm going to ask that you open to Acts, the 16th chapter. Acts chapter 16. You know, today we're actually finishing on this series, Going Deeper with God and What Lies Beneath. And many of you are thinking, you know, Bill, we're glad because it's time we've gone deep enough. It's time to come up for a breath of air. And I hope this last in this series will help you do just that. You know, if you were to visit my home at some point, uh, you would find the photo albums would come out, and you'd have to look at some of our pictures with me. And I'll just tell you uh, that even the ones that hang on the wall and are sitting around as I dust them, uh, there's a lot of joy in that for me, thinking about some of the things we've done as a family. Uh, One of the things I especially like about the pictures is is that I'm not in most of them. Uh, and, And you'll have to let me explain that. Uh, I've never liked having my picture taken, and some of you, maybe you feel the same way. Uh, Every time I see myself in a photo, it reminds me uh, just the shape of my head. I think I was adopted from the family of Charlie Brown, you know. Uh, But my my family loves me in spite of all that. Uh, And all those pictures, as I go back through them, they are a great source of joy, no matter what I'm going through. So my question for you this morning is, when the going gets tough, what do you do? Louisa Stead went on vacation with her little daughter Lily and her husband, and they decided to go for a picnic and rest on the beach on Long Island Sound. And while they were having this picnic, Louisa heard a frantic scream from out in the water. It was a young boy drowning just offshore. Mr. Steed jumped up and ran to the rescue, and he he leapt in the water and swam to the boy who was struggling against uh, him as he tried to rescue him. And Louisa and her little daughter watched as the two of them went under. They lost their ability to stay afloat, and Louisa Stead and her young daughter watched this whole horrific scene unfold. And even after that, their troubles were not over. Without her husband, Mrs. Steed became very poor and and destitute. But God never left her. In fact, he always provided for her. And Louisa learned to trust in God. And shortly after that incident of loss, Louisa and her daughter packed everything up and went to South Africa to become missionaries. So how did Louisa deal with the death of her husband and with the daunting task of raising a child by herself with very little resources? She picked up a pen and she wrote this song. Sing this with me. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. And we'll stop right there. Thomas Chisholm lived a sparse and an ordinary life. Born in a log cabin in Franklin, Kentucky, Chisholm never knew a healthy day in his life. He faced one chronic illness after another until the point that he was bedridden. He was unable to hold down a job and he couldn't afford what most people could. And so he became literally a social outcast in his town, so to speak. 
Now, he did try to become a preacher at the age of 36, but because of his chronic health conditions, he only did it for one year and had to retire at 37. Anytime he was able to be up, he was literally chained to a desk doing remedial work. But facing one chronic illness after another, being that social outcast, how did he deal with his sickness? How do you deal with fatigue day after day that goes to your bones, not living a healthy life? He too would pick up a pen and he would write this song. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassion, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercy I see. All I have need, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And we'll stop right there and skip the next slide, <clears throat> especially since I seem to be going through puberty this morning and my voice won't hold up. Six weeks after birth, uh, Fanny Crosby uh, caught a cold. Because of the negligence of a doctor, that cold led to blindness. Now, she spent her younger years of life moving from one school to the next, never knowing what would become of her life. She liked to write poetry, and in fact, it was so good, she got to share her poetry before the United States Congress and even read some of her poems for the president. But it wasn't until 41 years of age that she became a Christian. And when she came to know Jesus, she came to know what true joy was all about. So how did this woman deal with her blindness and the bitterness that came with it? Well, she too wrote a song. In fact, she wrote 8,000 of them, and we're going to sing a verse of every one of them. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. We're going to sing just one this morning, just the first verse. Sing this with me. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. You know, when the going gets tough, look what they did. What do you do? 68 years ago, a young couple contacted the doctor to let them know that their baby was about to be delivered. The doctor was on vacation at the time and he'd been drinking heavily and so when he showed up at the hospital, he showed up angry that he would have to leave his vacation and leave his fun to come and deliver this baby and when he walked into the delivery room, he had an agenda. 
He wasn't going to wait for a natural delivery to take place in that moment. And needless to say, what he did was he pushed on the mother's stomach to force the delivery. Charles Gale was born severely handicapped, and his mother would die in the process. Elmer Gale, the husband and the dad, was left without a wife and a son that had to be cared for every day of his life. How does he deal with that pain? How do you deal with the anger and resentment he obviously felt at that doctor? He said this, and I quote, I found joy in the gift that God had given to me in Charles. I learned to see the beauty in my son. Today, Charles is nearing his 80th birthday. And for the better part of his life, he would always stand at the front door of the church greeting in Tennessee. He's the first face you see as you come into the church. Charles hands out bulletins. He helps with communion. He helps take up the offering. He's got a kind word for everybody that comes through the front door of that church. He visited our little church in Huntington, Indiana once. And he made his way up to the stage that day to sing something he'd done at his home church many, many times before. He got up to sing a song, and because of his difficult birth and his speech, you really couldn't understand the words very well. But when he sang, the song he chose to sing was actually one that was written by a Sunday school teacher in the early 1900s. A guy named James Milton Black had moved to Williamsport, Pennsylvania. He taught music during the week, and on the weekend he worked at his church, not only leading music like David does for us up here, but he also worked with the children. He taught Sunday school, and he worked with the youth group. He, his passion was seeing young people come to know Jesus Christ. One day he was walking through an alley, and he came across a ragged 14-year-old girl. She was the daughter of a well-known alcoholic in town, and he invited her. And she began to come and attend. She was so poor that when winter came, she didn't have a coat to protect her from the cold. And this man knew about that, but he hesitated in helping her out too long. One day he stood up to, to give a roll call for his Sunday school class, and he called her name, and there was no answer. And one little boy said, excuse me, sir, she died last night of pneumonia. And it was in his grief and in that moment of pain that that young man realized the opportunity that he had missed. And he sat down and he wrote the words of a song that he would perform first at that 14-year-old girl's funeral. And it was the song that Charles chose to sing at our church. It was the song that Charles chose to sing at his home church because it spoke of something better. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more And the morning breaks eternal bright and fair When the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore And the roll is called up yonder I'll be there when the roll is called up yonder, 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 I'll be there. I listened to Charles talk and sing. And he may be hard to understand, but he expresses what's deep inside of him. And I'm left to ask a question of myself and each one of us. If a man who by the world's standard is limited 
and he knows enough to tell others the joy of knowing Jesus, then what's my excuse? What's our excuse? When the going gets tough, what do you do? Well, when the going got tough for the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16, he would sing, just like you just did. It's the story of Paul and Silas in the town of Philippi. And they're constantly being followed and harassed by a woman with an evil spirit living within her. Now, back then in his day, they had no uh, institutions. They didn't waste money or spend time rehabilitating people. In fact, they thought that crazy people had literally had their minds removed and replaced with the minds of lesser little g-gods. And she comes along and she's harassing Paul and Silas and she's saying things to distract the crowds. And if you've got the scriptures open, look in verse 16 with me. Acts 16, 16, Luke is writing, And he says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling, and she was following Paul and the rest of us, shouting, well, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. I read a story uh, this past week about a missionary in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, who had something like this happen. There was a man who would literally uh, run up and down the street in front of the missionary's home every day, completely naked, except for a motorcycle helmet that he wore. But everybody in the city was either amazed, confused, or terrified about this guy. And they all said the same thing about him. He was possessed. He had an evil spirit living within him because they said this guy could speak more languages than anybody else in the entire city. Now about the only difference between that man in Haiti and this girl is that he was not used for financial gain. And when Luke tells us this story in Acts 16, he makes it very clear that this girl was used by the people in Philippi for financial gain. She was seen as a resource in planning business transactions, and Paul is about to hit the people where it hurts. Look in verse 18 again with me. It said she kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. Paul cast out the evil spirit. He literally unplugs her from the psychic hotline And these people are going to be upset. Their stocks have just fallen. And they've got to blame somebody for the market crash that's happening in their life. You know as well as I do that when when any believer ever talks about the wallet or the purse, it's going to cause a stir. And it goes on in verse 19. When her owners realized their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them from the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered that they be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and he fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, now, I want you to notice this. Not only were they beaten with rods, 
which would be bad enough. It said they were severely flogged and then locked in the inner cell. Friends, this is no little event. I don't know if you've heard this around Easter time with what happened to Jesus, but flogging was something that was done with something called a, a whip called the cat nine tails. And it's often a leather whip with pieces of ceramic and bone or little lead balls attached to it. And what these magistrates and soldiers would do is they would lash you across your back and the bone would stick. And then they would pull literally the flesh off of your back. If you survived it, it would often leave you debilitated. Sometimes if it hit in the right spot, it would blind victims. And sometimes people just didn't survive the flogging altogether. And not only were they flogged, it says they were placed in the inner room of a Roman prison. In the dark, in cold, unsanitary conditions. And Romans were infamous for not feeding their prisoners. And not only that, their feet were placed in stocks. Their legs would be stretched out in front of them to the point of discomfort, while their arms would be chained to the wall over their heads behind them. And from this position, and from this posture, look what begins in the very next verse, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what? They're praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I once listened to a grandpa who talked about being shot in World War II. Following the war, he lost his young wife to cancer, and while working for the electric company down in Cincinnati, he was electrocuted and he lost vision in one of his eyes. And then later in a routine surgery on his right leg, uh, he, it was being worked on by, by two orderlies who were carrying him, and they dropped him. And he was permanently disabled to the point that he could never walk again. Later in life, this same man was diagnosed with leukemia. And to summarize it, I mean, this is a guy who'd been through it all. But his family remembers this. Visiting him at the hospital room for the last time. And he asked for everyone in his family to gather around his bed and sing. He said, I've got to get my voice warmed up for heaven. And they sang. And they belted out one song after another. And when they were finished, he started the last song. With the sound of the machines and IVs all over, a tube running out of his nose, in really just a whisper, he sang, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above all ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And moments after singing that, he died. Again, it says about midnight that Paul and Silas were praying and singing. And the other prisoners were listening to them. You know, it, it means that in listening, I love the Greek word there because it means they weren't just hearing it. They were straining to hear who in a place like this, at a time like this, in circumstances like this, who would be singing? And I like the way the message paraphrase puts this. It says this, look at this. The judges went along with the mob, and they had Paul and Silas's clothes ripped off and ordered a public beating. After beating them black and blue, they threw them into jail, telling the jailkeeper to put them under heavy guard so that there would be no chance of escape. 
he did just that. He threw them in a maximum security cell in the jail and clamped leg irons on them. And along about midnight, Paul and Silas were at prayer and singing, not just regular songs, but what does it say? A robust hymn to God. Victory songs. Locked up in a prison, but as free as any man could ever be. And the other prisoners could not believe their ears. So what made them sing? What made these men beaten up, locked up, stretched out? How could they sing? It's all because of the one word we're focusing on in this message today and going deeper with God. Joy. Going deeper with God in the joy that he gives. You know, I think if we were to meet the Apostle Paul on the street and talk to him, we would walk away and say, you know that guy? That guy is filled with joy. Would people say the same thing of you? When the words for joy are used in the New Testament, 40% of the time they're used by the Apostle Paul in Paul's writings. And when he walks away from that jail cell in Philippi, not long after that, he writes a letter back to them. Just four short chapters. But in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, he reminds them all again, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again. Rejoice. Again, in the message paraphrase, it says, Celebrate God all day, every day. I mean, revel in Him. It's not when you feel like it. It's not when it's a suggestion by somebody else. It's an imperative. Friends, if you're going to survive this life as a believer in Christ, you better learn to sing, and you better learn to have the joy that Christ provides. It is a command. So why does He issue this command to rejoice? Why can we have joy like Him? Well, I want to give you these quickly this morning. Number one is this. People who rejoice, they actually have a proper perspective of God. Believers who rejoice, they've got a proper perspective of God. Paul knew from the Old Testament that we are created in the image of God. And if you know anything about God's view of us in the Old Testament, he delights in his people. I like what it says in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. It says, the Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. And in his love, he'll no longer rebuke you. But what's he going to do? He'll rejoice over you with singing. God sings about you. God sings about me. And yes, God knows sorrow. Yes, God knows anger. But friends, that's because of our sin. You see, sin not only robs God of the chance at that joy, it robs us of joy. And so we come to worship if there's anything in our heart that needs to be laid before God to be confessed and dealt with. We've got to do it because we were made to be receptacles of joy. Paul in this command to joy, uh, have joy and rejoice, he wasn't joking. And it's something we're often disobedient to. I love what Karl Barth said about joy. He said, grace creates liberated laughter. This is for Christians, for, for people on the outside looking in, you know, what do you guys have to be happy about? It's the grace of God. He said, it's beautiful, and it radiates joy and awakens humor. Joy is a defiant nevertheless that Paul places at a full stop against the Philippians' anxiety. It's the defiant nevertheless. John Ortberg wrote a book once that I, I like called The Life You've Always Wanted, and he says this, I need to learn, and sometimes I'm joy-impaired. 
Joy is at the heart of God's plan for human beings. The reason for this is worth pondering for a while. Joy is at the heart of God himself. We'll never understand the significance of joy in human life until we understand its importance to God. I suspect that most of us seriously underestimate God's capacity for joy. And again he says, I'm sometimes joy impaired. Paul was anything but joy impaired. Paul's joy in prison that night along with Silas's and in the rest of his life, he was a defiant nevertheless. No matter what he faced, his joy was like what James talked about in James chapter 1 when he said, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. We know that joy made them sing when going through some of the toughest circumstances of life. But could it also be the second thing on your outline? You know, we can rejoice with the joy of creation. Did Paul think back to what he'd read when he was in that cell, when Isaiah said, you know, you'll go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Did the other disciples tell him about the time that Jesus said, if you refuse to praise me, the rocks will cry out. Mountains, trees, and rocks. I mean, look around you. God made the universe with the curiosity of a child and the sophistication of the king of kings. I, I just want to challenge you. I was going to read this, but I want you to uh, go online this week and look at Bob Russell. Uh, he has a blog, and, and last week he had a great time worshiping looking at a sand grouse, this simple bird that God created that flies 60 miles just to get water for its young. And it will drink for itself, and it will sit there, and it's, God gave it special feathers that soak up this water as it sits and watches for predators, and it will fly 60 miles back, settle into its nest while it's young, suck the water out of its feathers. And it will do that every day, 60 miles there, 60 miles back, for two months feeding the little ones until they're able to fly. And when he watched that at the end, he said, God is amazing. If God cares for, for little things, little birds like this that most people will never even see, man, how much does he care for each of us? The heavens declare the glory of God. I stand in awe that we have a God that spared no expense on our behalf. He made us and he provides for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this while he was sitting in a Nazi prison cell before he died there. He found joy in the food that they brought to him every day. He said that the food they brought, it had no smell, it had no taste, it was colorless, it was awful. But he said, I found joy in it because it was something that God delivered to me every day through violent hands. C.Y. Kim was a preacher who was unjustly prisoned in a communist prison cell, and he said something similar. He said, every day a little spider would come and visit him in his cell. Now, if that was me, I'd be out of the cell pretty quickly because I hate spiders. But he said, I looked at that every day and thought, that spider was a gift that God sent just for me. Could it be we lack joy sometimes because we fail to lift our heads and look around us? Our heads are downcast, our eyes are closed, and the psalmist said, I lift my eyes to the hills and look, where does my salvation come from? My salvation comes from the maker of heaven and earth. And today we might just as well say, I lift my eyes from my iPhone 
and see what God has given. Could it be that we were made to sing in our presence? Number three, friends, maybe he sang because of this. We can sing for joy and live with the joy of salvation. God loves me in spite of my big head and everything. He loves me in spite of my sin. The psalmist said, come on, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And it's a common theme throughout Paul's writings. And in books like 1 Timothy, he breaks into songs that we call doxologies. And he says, even though I was once a blasphemer, 1 Timothy 1.13, I was a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy. And friends, that's me. That that's you. And when I think about the cross, my heart aches. But oh, how my soul wells up with joy because I know I don't have to carry the burden of the baggage of sin anymore. Jesus took that for me. And Paul knew that joy. And I think in that prison cell, one of the reasons he was able to sing because he was experienced even there, the grace of God, You know, the word grace is used in over 60% of the times in the New Testament. It's used by the Apostle Paul. And the word in Greek for for grace is charis. The word for joy is charon, from the same root word. You see, joy is the natural expression to somebody that knows the taste of grace in their life. And I believe that those things truly led them to have the joy to sing. But I think there was one last thing. You know, Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he would say, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. In that prison, he could, he could ponder how incomplete he was. And could it be that Paul and Silas and us, friends, we can sing for the joy of consummation. Ooh, big word, Bill. Yeah, I use my thesaurus, but it fits, okay? Consummation, the idea that someday all of God's creation will be new. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and someday it will be complete, and we will know God face to face. Less than 100 years after John wrote the book of Revelation, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, wrote this about Acts 16, and I love this. He said, the legs feel nothing of the stocks. When the heart is in heaven, I like that. Robert Fulton was a preacher who recently presided over a wedding that he said was unlike any other wedding that he had ever performed. He said it was like an invasion of a small nation. The couple had uh, an 18-piece music ensemble, 24 groomsmen, 24 bridesmaids. And it was all orchestrated over by this woman that he referred to Uh, the mother of the bride, as a dictator-like mother. But he said the real climax of this huge wedding, the real humor in the wedding, did not come until just before the processional began. He said, ah, the bride, so beautifully dressed, she had been dressed for hours, if not days, before the wedding. Every ounce of, of her adrenaline had been spent while all this wedding was orchestrated and taking place. And before she came down the aisle, she decided to visit the reception table for a quick snack. Yeah. And so she, at the table, she picked up and went through the mixed nuts and ate a few of the mixed nuts. She picked up a few mints and ate them. And before long, uh, she was downing cheese balls and sausages on little sticks. 
She was eating pate and meat, meatballs and shrimp. And to top it all off, she had a big old glass of pink punch that was made to wash it all down. And when the doors opened up, Robert Fulton said, what we saw was not necessarily a beautiful bride, but what we saw coming down the aisle was not a white dress, it was her pale face. And she was literally like a living hand grenade with a pen pulled out coming down the aisle. She made it all the way to the front of the church, she said, and when she finally got there, everyone knew and saw what was about to take place. Forty-eight people in the wedding party began to step back and scatter, ducking for cover. He said it wasn't a little ladylike burp into a handkerchief. There's no way to put this nicely, he said. She sent people screaming as she hosed the front of the church building. And the only person smiling was the mother of the groom. (laughs) But the beauty of that story is this. Ten years later, everybody in that wedding got invited back to celebrate. They rented three big screen TVs and they watched the videotape of the entire wedding and they were laughing and teasing as they did. But how could they celebrate a disaster like that? I mean, how could they look at that and laugh and enjoy it? It's because they knew that after the mess at the end of the day, well, the bride still got the groom. And friends, that's all that matters. You see, why could Paul and Silas sing? It's because they knew at the end of the day, at the end of their life, after everything had been taken from them, the bride's still going to get the groom. And that's all that mattered to him. He was singing the song of the bride. And when the going gets tough for us, we can do the exact same thing, knowing the greatest day for the church, the greatest day in our lives, friends, is still ahead of us. And we know that one day when Jesus walked out of a borrowed tomb, that chains and suffering and death for us existed from that point on on borrowed time itself. And yes, the day may be hard. Yes, your life might be extreme. The day may be longer than you feel like you can bear. And yes, Jesus said that the groom and the bride, they may tarry until midnight. But he's coming. He is coming. Amen? John said in Revelation 19, verse 6, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Real joy. Deeper with God, joy in the confidence of heaven. She was a little grandmother named Lily Lewis. The phrase, they don't make them like they used to, could very well apply to her. She married a non-Christian man by the name of Marcus at a very young age, and they had nine children together. They lived through the Great Depression. They sharecropped 40,000 acres And even though they did that, they were always poor. Most of their nine children remember growing up without shoes, but they all remember on Sunday morning their mother getting them up and taking them to church. Everyone went to church, shoes or not, except for Marcus. He went to the local pool hall. 
to be with his friends, to bet and to gamble, but each year he watched as his wife instilled in those nine children the need to have a real living and authentic relationship with God until the inevitable happened and he himself surrendered to God, but not until his youngest child was 16 years old. 16 years of marriage running from God. And then that man would watch as this little wife, Lily, struggled through three separate battles with cancer. He would watch her even though the doctor said, you need to stay in bed, she was as stubborn as a mule. She demanded that the little country church they went to make a pallet or a bed in the foyer so that she could be carried in just to listen to the worship and to listen to the sermon. And maybe I need to interject this here and say real quick, uh, there is no career, friends, greater in the kingdom of God than that of being a mother. So moms, don't sell yourself short and don't waste your time in selfish pursuits. And dads, husbands, do not put undue pressure on your wives. And here's why. Grandma Lily died in her 90s. And at her funeral, her minister said, I can honestly testify, she rarely left Cimarron, Kansas. But as I look around this room, I realize she didn't have to. All nine of her children, all nine, entered the ministry or went to work on the mission field. He said, as I scanned the room, 41 of her grandchildren and over 100 of her great-grandchildren chose the same route of faith in Jesus Christ and their life. Her influence stretches around the globe. And her only request, he said, was that we would sing at her death. She said, don't say anything about me. You talk about Jesus and you sing. And so they did. For two hours at this funeral, they sang song after song, and that little country church in Kansas was just filled with songs. And as they went to the gravesite, they continued to sing. And the final song they sang was a song by a woman named Eliza Hewitt, the woman who once said that heaven is like oxygen for the human soul. And so they sang. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. In her mansions, bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. And a funny thing happened as they sang that at the graveside. Nearby stood the driver of the hearse who watched and he listened as this family walked away and he began to weep. Some of Grandma Lily's brothers walked over to attend to him and when this hearse driver surrendered his life to Jesus that day, he said, I have never in my life seen such joy in death. Joy. A deeper level of joy with God. And I believe that's why near the end of his life, after all the hardships he'd endured, after all the companions had deserted him, the Apostle Paul was able to pick up a pen and write the words, to a young man named Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4.18, he said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.
Paul went out singing. And did you know that at the very end of Acts 16, we didn't read this, but paperclip there is the story of a jailer and his entire household who came to know Jesus because of Christ in Paul and because of Silas. You see, real faith, all these things we've talked about in going deeper with God, it doesn't just stay inside of us. The joy that we have in Christ, it's not just for our personal satisfaction because when the going gets tough, a deeper level of joy always leads to the expansion of the kingdom. And so one day when you or I are in glory and we're going through God's wedding album together, who's going to be in that picture? Because of your joy. That's what I want to leave you with this morning. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray?